0: In 1998, whenever people would tell me they were thinking about moving to Austin, I practically jumped up and down with enthusiasm. I'd offer to give them my Realtor's number, I'd tell them which neighborhoods were the best, I'd even spend some time teaching them how to pronounce Manchac and Burnett the right way. I was practically a one-woman Austin welcome wagon. Now, 20 years, a million people, and countless hours spent idling on Mopac later... When someone tells me they're thinking about moving to Austin, my response is usually this. (sighs) Then I tell them I'd give them my realtor's number, but she retired five years ago after selling a 700-square-foot house for $1.3 million. But if they're looking for a nice neighborhood, they should definitely check out the areas around Manchaca and Bernay. I'm Wendy Ahrens. And this is I Love You So Much.
1: Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tolly Mosley. I'm Omar Gaiaga.
2: And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. Statesman culture writer Michael
1: Barnes has a new volume of Indelible Austin, Selected Histories, out now. On the show, he talks to us about the dawn of Austin's creative class and the nation's LGBTQ community in ATX.
2: Wendy Ahrens, one of our favorite Austin funny people, has been teaching classes on humor writing. She gives us a crash course on the mechanics of writing for laughs.
3: After a long wait, Marvel's Black Panther is finally here. Film critic and comics expert Joe Gross tells us why it's a landmark of representation as well as a great overall film.
1: And we'll conclude with a toast, a set of recommendations
2: of things we feel you should be checking out right now. Let's start with Michael Barnes, who reveals how some of the stories in his history books about Austin came together.
1: Barnes, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Welcome back of sorts. We used to have you on Statesman Shots all the time, and two years ago, we talked about the first volume of Indelible Austin, Selected Histories, uh, and two years later, now there's a volume two. There is. It was that popular.
1: More Selected (laughs) Histories.
4: That's right. Now, tell us where these stories come from, because they they they're originally published in another format. Well, they're published in the American Statesman uh, as feature stories, as columns, and so forth, and where they come from is often someone will contact me and say, you know, my grandmother tells great stories, Uh, why don't you uh, interview her? And so I'll agree and I'll go and sit down with a person and not take notes and just find out who they are and decide from there whether or not, you know, a more formal interview is possible. And then I usually take along, if it's one of our elders... I take along members of the younger generation in, in their families or their circle, their church or community, because it's very helpful to have them as kind of a, as a truth test, and also <laughs> to remember everything to to put it put it into context, and uh, and then sometimes there's a second or third interview, and then they become. Uh, I do also outside research. I have to check all those things, and occasionally I have to say something like, you know. I don't think you really met Ma Ferguson because she was governor before you were born. You know?
1: <laughs> so every
4: once in a while
3: I have to do a little, a little.
1: fact checking.
4: <laughs> and,
3: and also you were telling us off, Mike, that, that a lot of times you're being guided by sort of historians of a certain neighborhood or people who are already sort of working on, you know, either oral or written histories of, of a particular place. And they kind of guide you through some of the Yes, these a very
4: wise editor once uh, um suggested that I take along a guide when I did walk these neighborhoods and and, and and took notes and so forth and and that was a great great uh, insight because every neighborhood has somebody who e- even if it's just somebody that you spot on the front porch and you go up and ask them, well, what was here 40 years ago? what was here 80 years ago? One of my favorites is a woman who's on South Congress. I hope I, did I tell this story before? I don't think so. Okay, well her name is I'm a warden. And she's out there sweeping in front of her her bungalow on South First. It's right next to Lemoire. And I always say, "Uh, Miss Warden, would you let me interview you for the paper? And she goes, I don't. Why would you want to do that? What do I know? (laughs) I said, well, you've been living on South First for 90 years. You've seen a lot. And she goes, I don't think so. And the one time I asked her, and she said, well, Kelso already interviewed me. (laughs) I said, really? I I don't remember this. I looked it up in the archives. She's quoted once. And so this is a time when, when Lenoir was a hipster ice house, what before it was Lenoir, and they were playing horseshoes in the backyard of the, of the hipster ice house, and people across the creek were complaining about the noise. And if you remember Kelso, we lost him last year. He always loved a cultural clash, you know, between old and new. And so we went and interviewed her, and she said, oh, they don't they don't bother me any. You know, they pay their taxes, and they keep to themselves. You know, I I'll tell you what a nuisance was when the mailman's horse used to poop in our yard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell that story before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So can, like someone who grew up in the 1930s <laughs> and I 40s. Re- I
3: would have remembered the horse poop. For <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> uh, so after the first book came out, I mean, you say in the intro to this book that People came to you with even more stories, so much so that you had to create a, a, a database on a computer <laughs> to keep track of all of these threads. Uh, so what, going into the second book, were you thinking those threads might be as you
4: were collecting these columns into, into chapters? Well, you know, I don't choose the chapters until I have the, the, the all of the stories put together. But, but I do keep track of not only uh, story ideas that people have given me, but also of story subjects. That I've never um, touched on, in in part because somebody else has already done a better job or because as a newspaper person, I need a fresh angle. And I just was adding to that list yesterday and going, you know, I really hadn't written that much about, say, Barbara Jordan, and she was a great hero of mine as a child. And then somebody said, oh, why don't you come and write about this exhibit at the Capitol about Barbara Jordan? I said, well, I'm not available, but let's get together. So a lot of times just thinking about what I haven't written about and knowing that I will need a fresh angle allows me to go ahead and and start just listening for mentions of those things so that I can follow up. And, And people like you know i've i've made about 100 public appearances since this came out they're always asking questions that i'm like yeah that's that's another story
1: yeah okay we've talked about process mm-hmm. let's pivot now to content okay so i was particularly intrigued by a chapter in your book titled Sex, Drugs, and Jazz. It
4: does have a buzzy title. It does. You?
1: Escapism, <laughs> Hedism, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll. It's like, clickbait. Could Got resist? it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is, in this chapter, you're really focusing on Austin's emergent youth culture. And this is this is dispersed over Austin. So, can you sketch a scene of what are the political forces going on at the time? What are the cultural forces? Hemlines are going up. <laughs> Music's getting louder.
4: Yeah. What's happening? Well, I, I have to uh, point out first of all that, that it was that my source on that was Richard Zalad. I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Who is a, a fantastically entertaining writer, and he and I spoke at the same ACC class, and that's where I picked up on all this and and I and I credit him there with with the real research but basically uh, it is a youth explosion in the 1920s after people feeling um, you know the losses of World War One the flu epidemic in 1918 all this that we needed liberation and the economy was doing well so people had money and there was automobiles so people had freedom and, in fact, freedom to go and neck and pet, which they <laughs> called it back then. <laughs> Plus, there was alcohol and a cult of alcohol and even drugs, harder drugs, cocaine, uh, so forth. And, um, you know, this was like any other place where there were a lot of young people. Which uh, there
1: were, because, thanks to UT Austin. Thanks
4: primarily to UT Austin. So they just had a wild time. And, um Richard dived into the uh humor magazines at UT and found just outrageous stuff at the time that they were able to get away with and there was even gender bending uh there was a lot of going to East Austin to uh, uh black clubs and and but still we need to be reminded that this in terms of segregation it didn't go both ways you know you you know, the the kids would go over to, to hear some of the great blues and jazz artists, um, but you didn't see that coming the, from the other direction. So that's part of the context for this wild time.
1: <laughs> you know, I love this little um, paradox you point out that uh, instead of just engaging in sex, jazz age youths tended to marry right away then followed up with a quickie divorce <laughs> until lawmakers put time limits on both institutions. <laughs> exactly.
4: that, that seemed to be a solution for them. And,
3: and
1: so just so very Texan, you know, and, like, but we're still going to marry.
3: Yeah. Uh, but, one of the things you, you always bring up about Austinites um, is that when people come here, they are coming to be part of the culture, not to, not necessarily to change the culture or to make it something else. If They're coming here consciously, yes. Mm-hmm. And we've got South by Southwest coming up, which is sort of the... <laughs> I think of it as like a cr- recruitment center for future Austinites. Uh, but you have a whole a whole chapter on the creative class, and, and I know South by Southwest, with who they're trying to attract is typically digital creatives. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, has the the sense of how Austins are, how Austinites are creative, and how they, you know, put out that creativity, has that changed over the years? Is is it the same kind of
4: sort th- of sense of creativity? I think it has changed, and I think part of it is money. Um, you came here. Uh, and you were creative, and you lived off of you know just the scraps, and and, and the housing was cheap, food was cheap and good. You ate barbecue in and Mexican and chicken fried steak or whatever. And now uh, you go out and you you think, who can afford these meals that I'm having? <laughs> if and then the places are full of young people, mm-hmm. and then you, people are moving in our neighborhood, and the prices have gone through the roof. I live in South Austin, Bolden, about a mile south of the river. You know, like a, a young friend of mine said, oh, I looked you up on TCAT and you're rich. I said, no, no, we're not rich. We moved in 20 years ago. The people who are buying in our neighborhood are rich. Yeah. We are way, way <laughs> below their income levels. So, yes, the fact that you can make $170,000 $170, in, in uh, you know, entry income from a, a, a tech company means that that you're coming here with different expectations and and being creative is also means in their in many cases being vastly better paid than the creatives in the past so that's changed
1: I remember reading an article in the statesman from the late 90s citing housing prices on rainy street for $50,000 <laughs> <laughs> And that is an interesting
4: time. story too because it um, started out as a working class a white neighborhood and became, uh, after the uh, the 1920s, became a, a Latino neighborhood. And it um, it hung on even as downtown began to blossom and redevelop. And uh, uh, activists in that neighborhood said, "We want to protect this. we we, we love this little stretch of funkiness." So they voted for it to be uh, uh, zoned historic, and the whole street from one to the other was historic. And then a few years later, (laughs) they went... Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, we can make a little money on this, and so they voted to unhistoric it <laughs> and, and make.
1: And now it's a business district. Was that transition in the sometime in the early two thousands? Like when did that happen? Yeah,
4: it's when they when they finally uh, rezoned it for high density, and uh, it really wasn't expected to be like a commercial street, like bars and restaurants. It was expected to be what it's becoming now, which is high rises. Got it. And so the the interesting balancing act is can they keep those low-rise attractions while they build these high-rises because, you know, a high-density zoning means you could make a lot of money developing
3: it. Building up. And in, yeah. the, in the 2000s, I was watching it because that, that was also, you know, right near the, the Mexican-American Cultural Center exactly. as that was being developed. So you had this interesting schism between that development and that kind of – the artistic goals of that center – And then all these clubs and restaurants
4: and and kind of fancy places popping up. Interestingly, that comes back to a theme that's in all my writing, and that is every time we improve our city, we we are encouraging people to come here and enjoy it. The (laughs) Mexican-American Cultural Center is an example. That was when I lived on the east side and walked through there to get to the Statesman. It was a city um, maintenance yard, and it was – it was truly trashed out. It was re- warehousy, yeah, warehousing in a and not in a, a chic way. <laughs> <It was laughs> in
1: disrepair, not,
4: not a party warehouse. <laughs> so, so <laughs> activists from the seventies all the way till it got built were working for a Mac, and when they finally built it, it was wonderful. It was a signature building in town, beautiful plaza. Uh, Suddenly, that whole area was a lot more attractive. Congratulations, <laughs> you did it,
1: activists. Now, Mopac is a wait, parking lot. Wait,
4: we gentrified ourselves.
1: <laughs> what? what? Um, let's just transition now into Austin's LGBT community because uh, the Statesman ran a really interesting questionnaire and published the results in 2000, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be enlightening to share some of the data points from that. So, do you want mm-hmm. to... Uh, draw our attention to those.
4: Well, let me start by giving the context. Uh, there was a very, very dear friend of mine, uh, Sean Nass, a social scientist. We were here in, in the early 80s, housemates a couple of places. He moved to Brooklyn, he came back with his husband, and he felt like Austin was homophobic. I was like, get out! I've never felt any homophobia here. He says, oh yeah, Oh yeah, it's homophobic. And I said compared to what? And he said compared to his neighborhood in Brooklyn, which it's okay. So we would have this argument, and he said, he said, why don't you do a a survey and see if if uh, uh, LGBT people? And this was before we used that right. <laughs> those letters. Mm-hmm. If gay people are happy here, what's the, what's their satisfaction with quality of life? And I said, okay, I will. <laughs> and he was surprised that I actually went. And uh, the editor then, Rich Oppel, said, sure, do it. Mm-hmm.
1: I love w- that this whole questionnaire was born out of indignation. It was! <laughs>
4: <laughs> and so so we, we put it in the paper, and, and, and Sean came up with, with – you know, sound questions that could be duplicated in other cities. And it was, the survey was duplicated in oh, other cities. this is
1: the guy that you were saying like won a huge prize. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, he, and yeah. he wasn't a journalist. No, he wasn't. <laughs> okay, got it. His
4: very first story won the top national prize. <laughs> we co-wrote it to Amazing. the ire of every other journalist <laughs> nominated. <laughs> so, um, we got, uh, we also had it online because that was 2000. So there was a little bit of online yeah. and, um, And we had 1,200 responses, and I was really disappointed. I said, 1,200? I mean, we got hundreds of thousands of readers. Well, only 1,200? Turns out it was the largest survey of any gay community ever. Wow. And, I mean, that much data, they're still using it. They're still interpreting things through that. But basically what we found was that uh, gay people were uh, happy with and content with Life here. They had the same uh, reasons for moving here and the same reasons for being annoyed with the city. But the thing that they missed the most was a kind of a, a gayborhood, a place to yeah. go to to have gay businesses and gay. The, the truth is, there's it no to,
1: Castro in Austin. No,
4: and the, the truth is because historically, this was such a tolerant city, such an accepting city. There was no need for that ghetto mentality of we all need to get together to protect ourselves and live in all the same few square blocks. So um, the whole city is a gay neighborhood. Right. <laughs> right. Every right. day is gay pride day right. <laughs> right. right. Well,
1: what I was fascinated to hear was that there's something interesting in those data points, which were, th- uh, I hope I'm quoting this correctly, but um, lesbians are less satisfied with the local culture and community than gay men, while Latinos express more satisfaction than non-Latinos. Um, this is also interesting, not even explicitly related to LGBTQ. People in relationships, 69 of the participants, are more satisfied with the area's culture than singles, mm-hmm. which I wonder if that last point is still true today.
4: Yeah. Um. I would bet because one of the things that would surprise me was that the single people said, "Yeah, I go to Dollars of Houston," and I'm like, "Really?" Because there's such a great, you know, gay club scene here and everything. And said, "No, no, people here are all pretty settled down." And the truth is that that the um, once people do settle down, and uh, my husband and I've been together for 27 years. We think the city is great <laughs> because Got we it. have all these Got gay it. friends and straight right. friends, right. and we're but but if you were a young person or a, say an old single person or just a newcomer, where would you go? How would you make friends? What would you do? And there really isn't a a, a, a gay social center or community center. So uh, ever since then, that opened my eyes because we did used to have one over on Red River Street, a, a, a community center. And I've said ever since then, if somebody would come up with a good idea, I'll support it because people need it.
1: Powerful. That is a powerful off- off- offer, listeners. Well,
3: <laughs> this and many other stories are in Indelible Austin, two more selected stories. And Michael is still doing public appearances to support this book, right? You can still catch some readings.
4: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Book people's coming up, I think, April 2nd. Uh, But, yeah, I'm speaking every week, and and I, yeah, ask me. You can can find Michael's columns in The Statesman, and also, uh, is there a website for the book? Uh, Yes, there is, and uh, there's an indelible Austin website, and there's also a website at the Austin History Center Association, which is what the group that published it through Waterloo Press. And give Michael a
3: follow on Facebook and Instagram and all those. You can always find him telling great stories. His
1: Instagram is a delightful little slice of Austin history. <laughs> Thanks so much, Michael.
4: Thank you.
2: What's the math and the art of humor writing? Wendy Ahrens, who writes for McSweeney's, among other places, gives us some insight on the process.
1: Welcome, Wendy, to I Love You So Much. Thank you for having me. So you are teaching comedy writing courses these days. Well, uh, humor writing classes. Humor writing. Mm -hmm. Okay, where do you teach these, and who signs up for it? Uh, I've
0: taught for the Writers League of Texas and then also for a group of uh, improvisers I guess you would call them and then I recently gave a talk at the Bee Cave Library last week Um, so it's kind of pretty much a mix of lots of people, old and young, people who aren't writers but just love comedy, and people who are writing novels and need to know how to put a little bit more humor in it.
1: Is this for anyone, too, who wants to have a stronger online presence, like someone who's like, you know, I just want to be kind of funnier on Facebook?
3: You know what my Instagram needs? Jokes.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's (laughs) legit. I haven't had that question.
0: That's actually kind of easy to teach, too. Um, But... I mean, there's so many bad, not funny people. I think you just steal jokes. That's, yeah, well, that's how you that, get funny. That definitely works. That's the easy well, way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and the thing is, I feel like the you know the lingo changes, the buzzy phrases and catchwords change mm-hmm. on social media. But what seems cool about what you're doing is you're teaching the basics, like the mechanics of humor.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very, there's just a few practical, easy tips you can try. Do you want me to tell you one? Yes. Please. Uh, This is an antidote, which I say wrong, antidote. But years ago when I was an advertising copywriter, I used to do radio ads, which I loved. It's a great way to be good at humor is just to be economical and write uh, dialogue for radio ads. And it was for Daewoo Cars, I'm sure you all have one of those right now. <laughs> I uh, literally, I've
1: never heard of that. That's okay. a car? Keep
0: Keep going. Going. That was Sewing Machine Engine, I believe. But um, the character that I wrote was a surfer, and he was talking about how buying a car was such a hard process in a surfer voice. And another writer in the room with me crossed out hard, and he wrote in the word arduous. And when the surfer said it in that voice, it was so much more funny, a million times more funny, and much more memorable. So just even changing out words like that make a big difference.
1: Because it's counterintuitive that a surfer would use the word arduous. Yes. Okay. The
0: the disconnect, and also just the way he kind of chewed the word arduous. I can't do it, but
1: it was like really Matthew, funny. I'm listening. I'm hearing Matthew McConaughey in my head yeah. saying arduous. Yeah. yeah.
0: Just in uh, it was just a, such a simple fix. So things like that can be done. Sometimes
3: it's it's math, isn't it? I yeah. mean A lot of comedy writing is, is equations. It's timing yeah. and, and specific, specificity mm-hmm. is, The a word words. I can say.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, was, I was piggybacking on that, Omar. I, I was going to, I wasn't going to say it's math, but it, there is a, an internal logic to it that tickles the unexpected part of your brain mm-hmm. or the surprise part of your brain. Is that what you're teaching? Yeah,
0: and we, uh, one of the things I talk about is the classic joke. joke is a setup and a punchline and you set the reader or the listener on a path and then wham, you switch it up. So one of my favorite jokes, which is not my joke, I don't know who to credit it to, but said, uh, I want to pass away peacefully like my grandfather in his sleep. Pause. Not screaming like the passengers in his car.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Yeah. So (laughs) it's the. I think I've seen it on a magnet. Yes. Or a a mug.
0: It's the redirect. Like you're not expecting (laughs) that at all. If
3: you go to Green to like the antique store, it's whatever's on those signs. It's probably there. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Wendy, do, uh, do you come across people who, in, in your life, who, are, who you can't teach humor to, who just oh, either don't yeah. have a sense of humor or do, just don't get the rhythm of humor? Is it, does that happen in these classes? Yeah, it?
0: for sure. Or they, they overwrite or they just aren't finding it. And I think that there's a, people have an innate sense of humor. Um, if, when I write, that's how it comes out. Uh, I can never like sit down and write um, emo poetry that's not in me. Uh-huh. Um, so it's just sort of what your your natural sensibility is. Uh, so there are people who are just so far away from ever being funny. And that's the challenge in these classes is to try to give them at least some techniques like the word choice or trying to do some rhythm or reading it out loud and seeing if there's something funny to put in there. And one thing I do suggest if it's somebody writing uh, prose is to – the character doesn't have to be funny but put the character in a funny situation. Like Confederacy of Dunces, that's a perfect example. You know, you you set them up to have the natural humor come out of, you know, what if you do this fish-out-of-water scenario.
1: So, okay, I love this um – distinction between people who are funny in life versus funny in writing which mm-hmm. is it seems like what you're teaching like um humor and writing because like i totally think of omar as like the innately like gets gets it in life mm-hmm. you know like like how has those funny instincts but then um omar and i were both bloggers and your your blog was much more earnest you remember oh yeah terribly happy yeah i mean oh, it was funny I- some times but like it was more like, I am sharing with you what is going on in my life.
3: Oh, I think I was trying to get all the therapy stuff out into the blog <laughs> yeah, so I could yeah. be funny in my real life and, and not be shunned by my exactly. friends. Exactly.
1: And his and Twitter and Facebook is like is just as humorous as you are in real life. But like, I'm the opposite. I, I'm not naturally funny in life at all. Um, I'm the one who's laughing at you funny people. But in my blog... The, like, that's where I was funny. Like, that's where the, that's the interesting funny can come out.
0: I'm the opposite. Because you've met me. I'm, like, dull and boring in person. But on <laughs> the page, it's a different voice that comes out. Yeah. yeah. Same.
1: Same. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Now,
3: I'm, now, going back to these classes, did you have people who came in... Uh, Who were not funny, but you could see the light bulb going off in their head of like, oh, did you have like those discovery moments? A
0: little bit. Or uh, at the end of the class I had taught last week, we uh, had people who wanted to stay after, stay after, and told them just to write three headlines like you would see in the New Yorker, shouts and murmurs, something kind of funny, and some of them. Uh, th- so they would write them down, and then we'd, they would read them, and I'd kind of give them fixes, or wouldn't this be more funny that way? And that was the light bulb. They were like, oh, yeah, I see. I didn't need to go – It's what what do they call it? A, a long walk to get a roast beef sandwich. You don't need to do all of this. Just, <laughs> yeah. just really simplify it and get the essence of what's funny about yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Okay, here's a question for you. Do you find that there are generational differences? Because I think the what we're saying here is, like, the mechanics are basically the same. It's that element of surprise. But – like we said earlier in the conversation, I feel like internet humor is always kind of shifting, mm-hmm. and there's um, like an in quality, you know, to knowing your Twitter slang or knowing your Instagram slang, and it it dates, you know, like no one's saying on fleek anymore. But like it's it is sort of an an awareness and an intelligence thing. So do you feel like people are bringing in those concepts, when they come to your class, or are they like, oh, I don't know, what's the internet?
0: Um, not too much. The I haven't had any true real young people in my classes Mm -hmm. I live with two teenagers who don't think I'm funny and uh, so maybe that's (laughs) that's the thing but it's interesting because you'll see it on the internet where people will use things different hashtags or different words and it's super you know that that's natural to them and their peers think it's funny and sometimes I co-opt it and I'll use it but I'm using it ironically to show like how ridiculous is it that I right. a woman of a certain age am using this term
1: so right right and then that's the element of surprise yes exactly you're so clever uh-huh. <laughs>
3: we <Wendy, laughs> turning it around on you good at this uh, Wendy this year uh, it seems or actually the last two years it feels like um, humorists have sort of Risen a little bit in the ranks as far as who's important in our society, along with along with journalists, I may say. <laughs> uh, in that you know we we suddenly value them f- because of the dire circumstances we're in and the relief that they provide uh, through satire or parody.
1: Just a relief. Yeah. Just yeah.
3: once. Can you explain kind of the difference between a satirist and a parodist? Like why why we need satire more than ever?
0: Well, satire is when you're using wit or anything like that to make fun or show the foul. Valid- fallacies of uh, somebody in power government, Donald Trump, anything like that. Parody is taking somebody that already, something that already exists and putting your own spin on it Um, like uh, SNL is a satirical show. Donald Trump is a playing a parody of donald trump on a satirical show so there's there's a definition difference um but yes yeah, uh, satire is so important right now and it's also become a little harder to figure out what is satirical with right. everything being so crazy because sometimes i'll tweet donald trump threw paper towels at puerto ricans or people think there's a fake melania and people are like did you make that up is that a is that a gag you I'm don't like, know no, anymore yeah you don't know it's anymore
3: insane you i I, I see so many tweets that i And there was also that period right after the election where it was like, wait, is that the real Donald Trump Twitter account or the the 20 fake ones that seem that look legitimately like a real account?
0: But I I do have a a parody Twitter account that's been going since 2012 called Paul Ryan Gosling. And that's (laughs) (laughs) fantastic. Yes. Thank you. But that, um, you know, surprisingly, we get a lot of feedback like people who are saying this just brightens my day because you're sort of letting me release this tension. So you think you're just kind of screwing around and doing dumb jokes, but it really has an effect on people, surprisingly, in this current climate.
3: Well, I mean, Twitter's been around for going on Uh, 11 years now. And the thing that—and I got on pretty early, and you you were on pretty early. Mm -hmm. but And, you know, I think for a lot of comedy people, writers, it sort of outlived its usefulness in some ways, unless you were running a Paul Ryan Gosselin account. But it did definitely, like— help hone the sharpness and the and the brevity like I think it, it kind of trained a generation of TV and comedy writers on the quick hit joke the one-liner mm-hmm. that had that had become sort of a lost art I mean did Twitter help you improve your skills in, in writing at all
0: I think so I, I was a copywriter so I was always better with the quick headline quick joke thing, but I saw Megan Amram uh, mm-hmm. at the... Right, um, through the ranks, yeah. Yeah, she spoke at the Austin Film Festival, and she said that when she was starting out, she would challenge herself to write, I think it was one to two good Twitter jokes a day. And that's... It worked. It worked She for broke her. out, mm-hmm. yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. There's a part in uh, Rob Delaney's book that I love where he says, you know, people were starting to steal his jokes on Twitter, and he's like, okay, you want to steal my jokes? I'm going to write a hundred more jokes. Wow. You know, oh. steal steal all you want, because I've got, you know, thousands of jokes in my... You know, quiver.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. And he's so distinctive. You mm-hmm. think, like, if somebody tried to steal it, everybody would call him out on it because it's so clearly Rob Delaney's type of joke. Yeah.
3: yeah. But his point being, like, I'm the one with the talent. I'm the one who can generate yeah. more jokes. You know, I'm not out there stealing stuff.
1: It's like mm-hmm. a muscle. You just have to work mm-hmm. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Wendy, to wrap up, let listeners know how they can find out about your classes.
0: Uh, well, I'm not doing any currently, but um, I'm, you know, I was. Eager to hear of people if they want me to teach a class. Are you available for
1: private tutoring? <laughs>
3: <laughs> can we hit you up on Twitter for a joke or two?
0: Would it be in a van? Can we steal?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing shady. Just can we steal your jokes?
0: <laughs> no, no I'm. I, I, I and I say this in my classes. I'm always happy to answer people's questions and talk to them. I love talking about it. So you know, to if anybody wants to email me or find me on Twitter at Wendy Aarons and send me a message. I, I'm happy to chat and, uh, you know, give some of my insights.
3: And where can people find some of your comedy run? I, my, one of my favorite sites, McSweeney's, is in yep. a place where you frequent.
0: Yeah, I have a new one coming up on McSweeney's next week or after. I'm really excited about it. So it's something that I just love that I wrote. And uh, I'm still writing on my blog. Remember those? Yeah. Um, yes trying to do. do that more often. And uh, yeah, I, I'm on Twitter more than I have been because it's just been more I don't know it's it, it's there's more engagement these days, so it's really fun and it's just That's a
1: polite way to put it engagement engagement yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll um link to all of Wendy's online homes so you can find our listeners if you want to get some humor writing pointers. Go, yeah. uh, thanks so much, Wendy. Well, thank for being you. and I love you. So much. Thank you. Keep being funny out there. you too Thanks. <laughs> Critic Joe Gross recently gave the movie Black Panther an A review. He talks to us about why the film is reverberating so strongly through the culture.
3: Mr. Joe Gross, welcome. Hey. So Black Panther. Oh yes. So I the sense I, I have not seen it yet. You've seen it. It's been out for a week. Most of our listeners who are into this sort of thing will have probably seen it. Yes. And when I say this sort of thing, I mean superhero movies. Yes. Uh, I have not seen people as hyped and in you know anticipating a superhero movie probably since Wonder Woman and even and before that I don't even know what before that.
5: Yeah. Uh, this is this is slightly unprecedented. I mean, we are recording this at a time when we're not completely sure what the. Um, what the box office opening weekend box office is going to be yet, mm-hmm. uh, but it's looking on track to be record breaking for February, record breaking for President's Day weekend. Uh, just you know, record breaking all over the place.
3: I like the irony of, of it being Black Panther that breaks the President <laughs> President's yeah, Day record, pretty much <laughs> the current President.
5: That's pretty awesome.
3: Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what are what do you think fueled that? I don't want to say hype because it feels like the quality of the movie is definitely deserving of this, but what fueled the excitement around it? What do you think pushed it from? I mean, three, four years ago, Black Panther was not a well-known Marvel property. not
5: not at all. I think a couple things happened. I think um, Chadwick Boseman knocked it out of the park in Captain America Civil War. He did a fabulous job introducing that character to audiences, he was incredibly charismatic. He was an interesting to watch. Um, and I think when it became clear that this was a movie by African Americans that would really be... I mean, when I say by African Americans, I mean both screenwriters, the director, the vast majority of the cast. There are two sort of major speaking parts for for white actors it's you know as as Christopher Priest who wrote uh the the comic book writer Christopher J Priest wrote Black Panther from 98 to the mid 2000s and um he said something on his website about the film he saw the he was at the premiere and said some things that were not spoilery about it one thing he said that that struck me and so I quoted it in my review is that we've literally never seen anything like this before. This is a majority African-American cast movie with, it's. A, I mean, it's a majority African-American cast blockbuster with, as he put it, every dime is on the screen. It's, you know, CGI all over the place. It is a mainstream family superhero movie about uh, African characters. And that is not something we've seen before. And I think, you know, one of the cinematic stories of the past couple of years is, you know, if you build it, people will come. Like, people will go to movies where they see themselves. The Fast and the Furious films are a great example of that, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, those do well globally because there are interesting characters across uh, the ethnic spectrum. And... Um, you know, uh, Black Panther is you know falls into that 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 category of people going to su- supporting something that they've never seen before,
3: and it didn't, doesn't hurt to have a soundtrack with Kendrick Lamar. No, <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> it's funny
5: the, the music is the music is quite good. The mix of excuse me, the Kendrick Lamar soundtrack and the score, uh, the composer for which I'm totally drawing a blank on at the moment, the score itself is actually terrific mm. on its own. And the Kendrick Lamar stuff doesn't hurt.
3: Uh, so when I mentioned Wonder Woman before, I mean, that, that's not an accident, I think, that, that people were so excited about that as well, because you know when it comes to superhero movies, we've hit that point of there have been so many, and we've been, gotten so saturated with these movies that it becomes important when representation comes into yeah, oh, play. Yeah,
5: absolutely. Actually, it's funny. Um, my two bosses at, uh, at the Statesman, who are both women, came out of that movie saying, you know, Those are there are better parts for women in this film than in Wonder Woman. (laughs) Yeah, it's it was just it's very, and it's also a very thoughtful movie. And in terms of the level of action and violence, it's much more family oriented. Uh, I I was struck by that watching it that. You know, there's there. You know, there's a scene of of torture in Captain America: Civil War. Um, there are scenes of torture in Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Um, there's some really unpleasant stuff in those movies, and uh, I think you know, parents were sort of rightly like, "I don't know if I can take my you know kid to this." Um, I I am not hesitating taking my nine year old and my twelve year old to see uh to see Black Panther. I don't think there's anything all that objectionable in it.
3: Yeah, you, you previously recommended Spider-Man that I l- had my kids watch. And I mean, there was maybe one or two words in it. Yeah. But the spirit of it was very family friendly. Yeah.
5: And this is even more so. I was, I, I was genuinely struck by it. And the thing that's really amazing about the film is that it's both more family friendly and more thematically sophisticated than any previous superhero movie that I've seen.
3: Now, uh, I, I started reading the comics, that the ta coats uh-huh. uh kind of reboot. It was like two years ago that that started? About that, yeah. And then we also have another Austin connection with a comics writer who is doing now another Black Panther comic. Uh, yeah. Ta-Nehisi.
5: Evan Narciss is a guy who writes for um, io9. Like, that's his day job. Uh, he knows Ta-Nehisi, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates socially, Um And I wrote about this a little bit in a profile of him for The Statesman. Uh, He has written very thoughtfully about representation and race in video games especially, but also comics and science fiction and stuff like that. And apparently, uh, Coates' editor at Marvel was like, this is really smart stuff. Do you think he'd be interested in writing comics? And um, Coates was like, Oh, oh, yes, yes, he would. and um, To someone who, like, before Black Panther had never written
3: comics either, like like an no, right. award-winning, yeah. amazing writer yeah. who suddenly found himself doing comics.
5: Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, Mr. Narcissus was able to sort of pitch, essentially, Black Panther year one, um, what was... Uh, The character like in his first year that he was king like and it starts it starts with uh, it's called Rise of the Black Panther. It's a six issue miniseries. And um, it's about, uh, you know, the, the first issue is about the Black Panther's father and what his reign was like. And then by the second issue. I don't think I'm really giving anything away here. Uh, you know, uh, the Black Panther's father is dead. What his uh, he is now the king. T'Challa, the prince, the former prince, is now the king, and he's a young king. And he's trying to figure out sort of how to lead. And I noticed watching the film that that's essentially the story that's on screen. I, mean, I was going to
3: say that that's more the story than the Tana coats. Coates, yeah, very much uh, so. Yeah. Version
5: the, the the most of the time the character has been a seasoned leader. Um, who's generally considered one of the, you know, smartest men on the planet up there with, like, Reed Richards and Peter Parker and people like that and just a, an absolute, a very confident leader. In uh, Evan's story, in Evan narcis's story, he's quite new, and in this film he's quite new. I mean, they're not, the two properties are not related. Like, Evan didn't, you know... Evan didn't work on the, the script or anything like that, mm-hmm. but it's they're very similar stories and similar mythology. Similar, yeah, similar mythology. Similar, you know, how does somebody grow into the role of being a leader? Mm-hmm. So, if
3: you've seen Black Panther and you can't get enough, you want more of the story. Wh- where would you go as far as the comics? Like, what would you read after? Well, I would absolutely,
5: I would absolutely read Rise of the Black Panther by um, uh, written by Evan Narciss. And, that, uh,
3: and are all six issues already published, or is it no? On, it's
5: only on issue two, so you can catch up. Pretty, oh, awesome, pretty fast. Uh, Tonhaase Coates' Black Panther is also very good. I would also point people back to um, Christopher Priest's run on the character. Uh, which is kind of definitive. It's basically like his his Black Panther is like, you know, uh, Frank Miller doing Daredevil or Batman. And uh, it's that's that's just a, a called the Black Panther, and you can get a couple of trade paperbacks of that. And if you want to go back even further, um, there's a writer named Don McGregor who really brought the character to life in the 70s. It was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, but they didn't work on it too much for a long time and he was sort of an also ran and then Don McGregor in the seventies really fleshed out the character and fleshed out Wakanda and created a lot of the, the, the bad guys, um, that you, uh, you'll see on screen.
3: Well, this calls for a visit to your local comic book store or your online emporium of comic books. if If you like to read them digitally. Uh, so Joe, uh, Check out Joe's stories. He check out his interview with Evan Narciss. Check out his review of Black Panther, his A review of Black oh, Panther, yes. one of the year's
5: best movies. Uh, it is so far. I mean, it's it's absolutely the best superhero movie I've seen ever. It, um I can't think of one that I like more that I was that enthusiastic about. Like the minute it ended, I was like I want to see that again right now. Score! They did it. It, it, Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. It's pretty. I mean, you know, it's a superhero movie, so it has limitations, obviously. But I was floored at how good it was. I mean, it was. It's incredibly thoughtfully made.
3: Well, there you go. If you haven't seen it yet. Joe says go check it out I will be seeing it the weekend Uh, I will hopefully have already seen this by the time you hear this Uh, anyway yeah check out Joe's stuff on Austin 360 his review his interview and I'm sure there will be more Black Panther coverage if this film turns out to be the blockbuster that we think it will be
5: thanks Joe thank you
1: We've come to the moment in our show where we have a toast. And Eric is delightfully back with us. Hey, Eric Webb. Hey, guys. Hi, Eric. Um. Okay, so Omar, I know you've got a controversial oh toast. Boy. I'm dying to hear what it is. Mine's a little vanilla. So please start us with some scandal.
3: Okay, well, I, I'm a parent and every now and then there'll be an article, you know, in, in a magazine or online that's supposed to like set off alarm bells and make you alarmed as a parent and terrified. This is one of those articles but it's actually really good and and worth the read even if you're not a parent, even if you are uh, a parent of young kids who will someday grow up. Are you about
6: to recommend Tide Pods, Omar?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Not to eat, no. If you got some laundry to do, sure. Um, This is an article in the New York Times Magazine called What Teenagers Are Learning from Online Porn by Maggie Jones. Now, (laughs) now let let me explain.
1: (laughs) Juicy. (laughs) Now,
3: this is an article about a a group that I had never heard about before that goes into schools and educates kids on basically how to watch porn the right way. Or basically like, here's what are the bad things in porn, the things that you should not take away as lessons for when you became a, a sexually active adult. And it is fascinating. This article really tells you kind of what's in the heads of teenagers who are exposed to all this stuff in a way that, none of us were that grew up you know pre-internet so um it goes into that it goes into kind of their attitudes and how their attitudes can change with a little bit of education how they start to learn to like not see some of these things in l- such literal terms uh as a parent as a terrified parent <laughs> whose kids are probably going to be exposed to this stuff uh sooner rather than later like i just found it a fascinating read a really informative read and a major, major like wake-up call. So uh, check it out, it's on the New York Times Magazine by Maggie Jones. What teenagers are learning from online porn? Uh, maybe read it at home and not at work.
1: I maybe. will totally <laughs> read that. Yeah, um, short of implanting little convenient archangel in uh, Catalina's and Lily's brains, so you can just turn on the filter. That sounds like a great article. Yeah. Okay, um, Eric, would you like to toast with us? I would
6: love to toast. So. I got my wisdom teeth out recently, and so it wasn't too bad, but I was clocking my my regulation time on the couch with some streaming services, and I got really into the MTV original series Teen Wolf, so I'm not going to pretend that it's good, per se, <laughs> uh, and I never would. But it's This off- is like
1: when I was newly postpartum, I was like, Millionaire Matchmaker is a great show.
6: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I love some lowbrow. I love some lowbrow, and this is off the air now, and it definitely is Tr- is riding this twilight wave a hundred percent it's very much in the same vein of like oh monsters are sexy now we're doing sexy monsters right but <laughs> it's not like Teen Wolf the Michael J Fox movie which was kind of funny this campy. is very, yeah. campy this is very this is campy in its own way but it's very dark. It's very mysterious. Brady. It's got it's got some major Buffy vibes. Some it's major
3: about bu- that Riverdale reinvention thing. Yes, going.
6: yes. And so the whole—I mean, we all know the premise of Teen Wolf. I'm not going to explain the premise of Teen Wolf to you, but <laughs> it's right there in the title. It's there's a wolf, but also <laughs> he he's is also a teen. A teen. <laughs> uh, but no, it's it's about uh, the Teen Wolf, and he's got his pack of uh, fellow friends, some of whom have various levels of supernatural <laughs> entanglements. It's his, very Buffy in that way. His pack. His, no, they call him his. They call them his pack. <laughs> uh, and he's a beta werewolf, and then you know there's the alpha werewolf, and so that's what the first oh, season's all about. It's like they don't know who the alpha is, but when the full moon strikes, <laughs> the alpha's gonna wanna like gonna want the teen wolf to pat to hunt with him, okay. and he doesn't want to hunt, and then he's in love with this girl. Guess what? Her family are werewolf
1: hunters. Oh, that's some dramatic tension gets, mm-hmm. is gets, what that is. He gets into these hairy
3: situations. Oh,
1: my okay. God. Okay. You were giggling for, like, a, <laughs> a solid minute waiting to tell that joke. i
6: going to have to defang you, Omar. <laughs> but it's really good. It's purely <laughs> escapist entertainment. And if you like yourself, like, a nice teen drama that also has supernatural things, but is also fighting, like, a big bad... I highly recommend. Wolf. Ah. Uh, okay. <laughs> well I'm done with my toast because okay. <laughs> I feel like I've been outpunned. Oh, well thanks, okay. Eric. Thanks a lot. Uh,
1: okay. <laughs> all right. Um ty- time to reintroduce some class back into the situation. Um okay, so th- uh, Austin Library. I feel like I have to restrain myself from not toasting something about the Austin Library every week. But, okay, zines. Did you guys ever read zines oh, yeah. growing mm-hmm. up? Okay, so I am just fascinated by zine eco, the zine ecosystem. Like, where they come from and who is like going to the Kinkos and making them and how they're distributed and their various levels of DIY-ness to them. Some of them have been going on for years. Some of them are like, a couple of friends. They decided to make a literary magazine together. I'm just so fascinated by zines and the concept of um, DIY publishing in general. And there's a zine, not like a Stacks at the library, but like a little movable cart where all the zines are. And I want to say it's hanging out on the third floor, just above the kids area, which is a very noticeable section. So. If you are fascinated by zines like I am and just, I don't know, want to dive into that creative, quirky world, um, often very feminist world too, head to the third floor right when you get to the top of the staircase and look right. There is a cart full of zines. Isn't it kind of by the graphic novels? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. So zines, <laughs> not nearly as fun as Dean Wolf. S- says or, Tali in 2018. Or like <laughs> online porn.
6: <laughs> there's, a, there's a through line there somewhere, I think.
1: Somewhere. <laughs> porn Teen Wolf scenes. Okay. All right, guys. Well, with those recommendations, we hope you enjoy yourselves. And thanks, Eric, for your toast.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: That's our show. She's Addy. He's Omar. I'm Tolly. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter
2: at loveaustin360. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com.
3: You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672.
2: This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listener, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your popcorn tofu from Wheatsville. Until next week, we'll see you looking up your neighborhood at the Austin History Center.